Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 200, Printin and Perkin. You are all probably aware that Shedcasts is now live. Randall suggested I allow you to buy a sub as a Christmas present, which is a fab idea. Can you imagine the joy? Possibly don't answer that. But if you do wish to make like Frank and do that very thing, email me at david 5 4031 at gmail.com that's david54031 at gmail.com or go to the website thehistoryofengland.co.uk where I've posted how this might work. I have also spoken many times of the network I belong to, Agora Podcast Network. Hop along to the website agorapodcast.com where you can see a host of podcasts to delight you all. Last week we finished on printing and Gutenberg's story. This week We'll talk about the spread of printing and our very own William Caxton. Then it's back to Henry VII and the obsession of the first half of his reign, the search for security. One of the earlier developments of Gutenberg's work was in the type of typeface. Gutenberg had chosen a Gothic, a thick letter script. Apparently this came from something called Caroline Minuscule, which was a standard developed for writing, so that Latin writing would look the same and the less literate would struggle less to read it, because it was standardised. Huh. The things you learn writing history podcasts. 
but in Italy they looked at Gothic and muttered something about those out-of-date Germans. What about the humanist spirit of the age? We need something more classical. Two German printers working in Italy at the time therefore developed the second of the three founding typefaces of printing. They did it by looking at all those monumental Roman inscriptions and then invented a lower case to go alongside it, those inscriptions all being in capitals, of course, which I hadn't really clocked. And so, Roman type was born. Around 1500, the third basic typeface was developed when italic types joined the library. It didn't take long after the appearance of the Gutenberg Bible in 1455 for printing to spread. In 1457, the first press appeared in Italy, and from there, printing spread like a rash, and by 1500, there were presses in 250 European cities. These first books, produced before 1500, are called incunabula, or newborn. Print runs were small. Gutenberg's Bible was done in runs of 180. The average incunabula was around four to 500 copies. But as knowledge and confidence grew, print runs grew with them, to 1400 and 1500 in the 16th century. Printing spread from Germany and Italy to France and Switzerland to Central Europe and finally across the water to England. But it was Venice that emerged first as the capital of printing, producing close to 2,800 different books by 1500, and this out of a total of about 40,000 different books, totalling somewhere between 15 and 20 million printed copies. Most of the books, 77% of them, were in Latin. Again, huh, fancy. In the 16th century, as you'd expect, this already enormous number exploded still further. 60,000 editions in France alone. Somewhere between 200 and 300,000 editions throughout Europe. And maybe 200 million individual books. Hope you're enjoying the stats. The super summary appears to be that publishing arrived early at its traditional passion for overproduction. In the context of handwritten books, it's not difficult to see with those numbers how this would have transformed the availability of knowledge and the spread of reading and literacy. Famously, of course, or at least famously to anyone who's been an English schoolchild, there was a man called William Caxton who introduced printing to Britain, and specifically, in this case, England and English. William Caxton was already a successful man when he took up printing. He was from Kent originally. He'd been apprenticed as a mercer, but had ended up in Bruges. There he was governor of the local English nation. What happened was that all the English merchants abroad in a particular country gathered together into a fraternity and they elected one of their own to represent them to local government and fight their corner, that sort of thing. The man they'd chosen in Bruges was Caxton and it meant that he must have been well respected and regarded. He also got involved in negotiations which connected him to men at court which would help him later, specifically negotiations like those with the Hans Merchants and Edward IV. So, by 1471, Caxton had thrown all of that up in favour of a new and lucrative-looking business, selling printed books based in Cologne. Which presumably, at some point, made him wonder if he could make a much better margin if he went home and printed them himself. Caxton was a good businessman. He realised right from the start that he would do better if the books he published were advocated by the well-known and fashionable. 
He didn't mess about waxing lyrical about the transfer of knowledge or any such highfalutin rubbish. He was in it to win it. His first book is a good example. Before he even brought his press, he'd selected his first book, The History of Troy, a successful book in the fashionable Low Countries. He went for English because he knew he had a chance to corner the market in English, or at least he'd have that first mover advantage they all talk about. He made sure he had a translation, which he did himself, and made sure it was read and approved by Edward IV's sister, Margaret of Burgundy, so that the buying public wouldn't question the quality of the translation, and, of course, he'd have a very fashionable advocate. And only then did he set up his press and print the History of Troy, which, if you are sitting in a pub and waiting for the quiz to start, is the first book printed in English. But as it happens, it was physically printed in Bruges, as was Caxton's second book, called The Game of Chess. In 1476, Caxton finally set up press in Westminster in England. The setup of Caxton's print shop would be recognisable to a printer centuries later, very much the same as the mass of printers that would be set up, for example, during the English Reformation or the Civil War. You'd start by setting the type, sitting in front of two big cases of type, one for upper and one for lower case, with masses of small compartments for the letters, of different sizes depending on their popularity. You had to work back along the line since you're printing a mirror image, and the type went into a long wooden block called a stick, which isn't massively inventive, but hey, it is at least perfectly descriptive. A journeyman printer could probably set about 1,500 letters an hour, or 20 words a minute. So, a column of type might take half a day, five or six hours. There would then be shelves of leads. These are blocks, which are the length of a line which separate the lines of type. Then there'd be a room for composing the pages, on the printing stone, sometimes called the correcting stone, since you'd do your final proofread there. Sticks and leads would be composed into frames called the chase, which were then tightened into a rigid form with the use of wedges banged into the edges to fill up the space. Once the page was ready, you'd have an area devoted to inking, with your ink pots and leather ink pads to ink the type. The paper had to be dampened, so there would be a tub of water and a stretcher to hang the printed sheets out to dry. And, of course, the press itself. Now, you could probably print about 250 sheets in a day, and this quantity gets to be called a token. At the end of a token, you would turn over a page, so you could count in 250s later when you needed to, and this sheet is therefore called the token sheet. Do you run to know all this? Why Westminster, you might ask? It was court patronage that drew Caxton to Westminster rather than going to London. It's a theme of Caxton's career that he went for a range of what you might call ephemera, by and large, in the hundred or more editions he produced, or at least popular books like romances, amongst the more normal religious books. Though sadly, the first book actually printed in England, and indeed English, was to prove far less ephemeral than most schoolchildren would have liked, namely the Canterbury Tala, the Canterbury Tales. The point about this was that these books needed advocacy from the best-known and most fashionable patrons, because Caxton was aiming for a fashionable audience. Books might be far cheaper now than they had been, but they were still not cheap, 
and Caxton was very good at getting the high and mighty like Anthony Woodville, the Earl Rivers, for example, to patronise his books. Caxton was not a particularly intellectual man, surprisingly maybe given that he did the translations, but his choice of publishing was very much along medieval lines. There's little to suggest he was affected by the humanism sweeping Italy well before he died in 1492 or 3. By the time he died, printing in England was spreading. Possibly the next leading printer was a man called Richard Pinson, who has a much better reputation for the artistry of his typography and content. But both printers and others, of course, had a big impact on the English language. Firstly, now there was much more standardisation. There was also a degree of importation of new words, as translators looked for words to convey meanings from, say, French into English. Notwithstanding Caxon's predilection for ephemera, by far and away the most popular subject for the early printing industry was religion. 45% of books were religious. And that doesn't mean 45% of books went to church. Their subject matter was religious, is what I mean, which reminds me of the meat and potato pie who went into a pub joke. I'll tell you at the end. A vast amount of these books were Bibles, 94 Bibles in Latin, 15 Bibles in German, 11 Bibles in Italian. It's been suggested that the Protestant Reformation had a big impact on printing, creating a demand for Bibles, but the reverse is also true. The availability of Bibles helped the Reformation to spread. Printing also began to satisfy the demand for mysticism and personal devotion, which was such a feature of the 15th century religion. And many of these could be read in church, like devotional primers. The church worried about all of this. <sighs> they worried about people not listening properly to their sermons. Fancy! More fundamentally, they worried about the authority of information in printed books. With manuscripts, written very often by the clergy, it had been so much easier to control information. And of course, access to the Bible was a fundamental issue between the Catholic and Protestant traditions. Protestants proclaimed the primacy of the biblical text and assumed that individuals reading the text would be automatically guided to the correct conclusions. The Catholic Church was firmly convinced that the Bible was a complicated document which the laity needed to have interpreted for them by an expert, a Catholic priest. So, just as Mainz was the first place to host a printing press, Mainz was the first place to have a church officer to censor printing. The Islamic world, on the other hand, banned the whole printing thing completely, and printing was not to be approved in the Islamic world until the 19th century. A really interesting fact, which I did not know. If religion was the most popular area of printing, there were many other popular ones. Early medieval encyclopedias, once produced, were super popular and continued to be printed throughout the 16th century. Science was popular, works on arithmetic, agricultural treatises, the works of Robert Gross Test and Roger Bacon, and so on. But it was not just serious useful stuff. There was a mass of jobbing printing going on. One of the things I find particularly enjoyable about the English Civil War, for example, is the absolute waterfall of mass-produced pamphlets and news sheets. We're not there yet, here at the start of printing, but there is a wider market for such smaller stuff. Now, one example are blank indulgences. What you do is you just fill your name in, get it sealed, and away you go through purgatory suites and not no questions asked gov. There are indeed other great events. So, for example, in 
1493, the letter from Columbus to the King and Queen of Spain detailing his discovery was published, translated into Latin as the universal language. That's probably enough on printing for you all, but just a couple more things about impact. One was, of course, that with so much more to read, printing itself continually expanded its own market by encouraging the spread of literacy. It's worth noting that though much cheaper than handwritten books, printed books were not exactly cheap and therefore delivered an excellent margin. Publishing was very profitable. But maybe the most important impact was on the spread of ideas. One quote sums it up. Printing was, quote, a technological advance which facilitated every technological advance that followed it. Now then, let us turn back to Henry VII and crack on with the new reign. Henry has had his first parliament, established his administration and gathered around him the men he trusts, led by his two most trusted advisers, John Morton and Reginald Bray. His domestic arrangements are in place, if slightly uncomfortably in place, and he has faced down the first major challenge to his rule in 1487 at the Battle of Stoke. It is entirely possible, well it is possible, that Henry from here intended his rule to be that of an open-handed medieval prince. Yes, he wanted to enforce his rule and his central power. Yes, he carried with him the innate distrust and concerns of his years of exile. But for a relatively brief period, from about 1487 to 1491, there might have been a chance that his reign could have ended with genuine pain at his departure from the mortal coil if things had been different at this point. Money was tight, it is true to say, but there had been two parliaments which had offered financial support and he'd been granted customs dues. It need to be careful, but things were not impossible, especially given the vast lands of the crown following Richard's fall, bolstered even further by the 1485 Act of Resumption. He had at his side two intelligent and tough advisers in Bray and Morton, whose instincts were to be firm, careful, but far from tyrannical. As we will see, after this relatively short window, all Henry's instincts and tendencies are confirmed and strengthened in a welter of threats to the security of the realm. Henry's objectives in his foreign policy are not immediately discernible, in the sense that talk of a defined system or strategy around his foreign policy is assuming too much coherence. There was an awful lot of reacting to events going on. But nonetheless, just like 1485 domestically, Henry's main concern was to establish his legitimacy with the crowned heads of Europe, and by so doing, bolster his security against his enemies, Principally, Margaret of Burgundy. It was also to gain a voice and influence in the European world, but it was to do so cheaply. Henry appears to have had very little baggage concerning foreign glory, and his policy was essentially defensive throughout his reign, so very unlike his son. The world he faced was one where this very lack of legitimacy put him pretty much at the bottom of the league. England had very little influence in Europe and was very little considered. He faced, very simplistically, five main potentates. There was the King of France, Charles VIII. There was the Empire, represented mainly by Maximilian and the House of Habsburg, who was also called the Duke of Burgundy, as it happens, though the place Burgundy, with all the wine that place, was ironically no longer part of Burgundy's lands. There was the dual monarchy of Spain, Ferdinand and Isabella, and there was Scotland, where James IV had just come to the throne in 1488 at the age of 15 by virtue of defeating his father in battle. 
And then finally, there are the four popes he had to deal with. I feel a regnal list coming on. And so, on the website, you will duly find a regnal list to help you navigate through the foreign relationships. Henry's main concern was France. John Morton's view was that France had, quote, an unbridled rage for domination. And against this threat, Henry needed friends, and it was to the empire that he looked. Maximilian would naturally seek friends against France, and by being valuable to the empire, Henry also stood to help trade through Flanders and critically to combat his most virulent and relentless enemy, Margaret of Burgundy. And so, feelers were put out to the most Catholic monarchs, Isabel, but mainly to Ferdinand of Aragon. Because although Henry's son Arthur was so young he was still warm from his mother's womb, Henry was ready to use his valuable counter in the diplomatic game. I exaggerate a little, I have to say. Arthur was too. And anyway, Isabel and Ferdinand would be negotiating with Ferdinand's daughter Catherine, who was but three. That would be Catherine of Aragon, by the way. That Catherine of Aragon. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Anyway, as Arthur and Catherine concentrated on doing things like standing up and trying to put anything they could find straight into their mouths, life-threatening or not, and that sort of thing, their parents discussed their futures. Henry and Ferdinand, in particular, would have two lifetimes ahead of them negotiating about this. Neither of them would turn out to be the compromising type. Negotiations were sharpened with a diplomatic disaster in Brittany. At the Breton town of Saint-Aubain-du-Cormier, Duke Francis and his Breton army faced Charles VIII to prevent the French king taking young Anne, only heir to the duchy, as his wife and therefore snuffing out the always flickering light of Breton independence. Alongside them stood a few hundred English archers under the command of one Lord Scales. As it happens, and despite the growing maturity of gunpowder, the English archers caused panic as per normal. But all to no avail. The Battle of Saint-Aubin marked a major success for Charles, ending the so-called Mad War, the Civil War in France, in his favour and potentially gaining him Brittany to boot. This was exactly what Henry and Spain feared, and the result was the Treaty of Medina del Campo between England and Spain. The treaty was specifically aimed at the French, but of course the most lasting clause was the marriage contract. Catherine of Aragon was to marry Arthur and bring with her a dowry of 200,000 crowns. Even without the French stuff, this marriage alliance was an absolute triumph for Henry, for two reasons. Firstly, he had a marriage alliance with one of the leading royal houses of Europe. So who's calling me illegitimate now then, eh? And secondly, 
Ferdinand was brought to refuse help to any Yorkists who might pop out of the woodwork, specifically anything to do with Margaret of Burgundy. There was one more roll of the dice. Anne of Brittany was but twelve. Maximilian and the Empire hatched the scheme to marry her, supported by Breton patriots. Henry committed 6,000 men under his favourite, Giles Daubeny, to fight for Brittany. As it happens, Daubeny did well with a victory over the French at Dimoud in Flanders, covering himself in glory by wading through ditches with water up to his armpits to capture the French guns. But it was all in vain. Charles bought Maximilian off. Maximilian, by the way, has got to be up there as the most unreliable ally in the history of unreliable allies, which is a substantial tome. But anyway, by 1491, Charles and Anne were married, and the Duchess of Brittany was now also the Queen of France. None of this was good for either Henry or the Empire. Henry was made to look ineffective, incapable of helping his friends, namely Brittany. Both Henry and Maximilian needed to find a way to stop French progress. But for Henry, worse was to follow. Pierre-Jean de Warbeck was the son of a successful Flemish merchant. In 1491, the 17-year-old was continuing a rather successful-looking education in trade. He travelled to Portugal in the company of the English Yorkist Margaret Beaumont, and he'd made excellent contacts there, and in December he sailed with his Portuguese trading partners to Cork in Ireland to sell silks and presumably, or hopefully, make a bundle. But while he was there, the lad had his head turned. He was apparently a good-looking youth, and must have felt he was made for grander things. The men who turned his head were called John Taylor and John Atwater. Taylor was a Yorkist exile who had come to the attention of Charles VIII, King of France, and been funded to stir up what trouble he could in Ireland. After all, Ireland had already blotted its Tudor copybook by supporting the pretender Lambert Simnel. Maybe they could be persuaded to produce another one with a bit of judicious funding. A great way to distract Henry from his alliance with Maximilian. When John met Pierre Chant, they persuaded him that a world of luxury, power and glory could be his if he impersonated Richard of York. Richard who, I hear you say? We are speaking of the younger of the two princes in the tower, the younger of Edward IV's sons. It is tempting to ask why the previous Irish-based pretender hadn't taken the same approach. Impersonating Richard had two advantages. Firstly, unlike Edward, Duke of Warwick, no one knew where he was. Everyone knew where Edward, Duke of Warwick was, safely under lock and key in the Tower of London. So Lambert impersonating him had seemed like an utterly daft idea, but there you go. The other advantage was that Richard of York was ahead of Elizabeth of York, Henry's queen, in terms of succession to the English throne. Not only was he a claimant to the English throne, he cut the good work done by Henry's marriage off at the knees. Now, I cannot imagine what got into young Pierre Chant. If John Taylor had come to me at the same time, I can guarantee he'd have been sent away with a flea in his ear. But Pierre Chant was made of sterner or vainer or darker or even dafter stuff. Before you could say Titulus Regis, Pierre Chant, or Perkin Warbeck, as we know him, had been transported to Paris and the glittering French court, and there was announced to the world as the lost Richard IV. There, Bishop Richard Fox and Giles Daubeny would have seen him, 
and reported back to a horrified Henry VII as they'd travelled to negotiate with Charles. In fact, Charles had misjudged his man. Henry has gone down in history as a man who turned firmly aside from desire for foreign glory in favour of husbanding the royal finances, and broadly this is true. But in 1492, while Columbus sailed the ocean blue, Henry made like Henry IV and invaded France with Maximilian's approval and expected physical support. Now, this is something that seems little spoken of in connection with Henry VII. But the invasion looked for all the world like a major undertaking, very similar to Henry V's. A massive army, well-financed, with 15,000 strong, landed in France, this time near Boulogne, with Henry's favourite commander, Daubeny, at his side. Actually, it was a pretty daft time to go. October, well at the end of the effective campaigning season. Boulogne was bristling with French guns and pretty much impregnable. And it's very tempting indeed to conclude that Henry was far too clever and had different objectives to his namesake Henry V, and possibly objectives much closer to Edward IV when he invaded France, though probably minus the pies. Essentially, Henry appears to have decided that he had an opportunity to use Maximilian to achieve two objectives. One, seal a deal with Charles and get himself a pension with which, just like Edward, he could maintain independence from Parliament. And secondly, get the new pretender Perkin Warbeck out of France and hopefully into some miserable ditch somewhere. And at the Treaty of Etape in November 1492, that is exactly what he achieved. To the letter, a massive pension of 745,000 crowns, payable at 50,000 crowns a year, and an agreement that a pitchfork would be aimed in the direction of young Perkin's backside. It's tempting to conclude that Henry was well pleased, but he was an intelligent man, and he may well have realised that it was really no more than the best of a bad job. Maximilian was spitting feathers in his fury at what he saw as desertion. England, hated or loathe it, was still a traditional medieval place where a king's job was to win glory. And instead, 15,000 men returned to England to moan into their beer about what a dispiritingly dishonourable display had been made, dragging England's glorious reputation through the dirt. Parliament sourly noted that the money they'd voted their king had hardly been well invested. The immediate consequence was seen at Mechelen. There, at Margaret of Burgundy's magnificent palace, Margaret enthusiastically endorsed Perkin as the lost Richard, Duke of York, rightful King of England, and sent a flurry of letters to the head of European nations, making this very announcement. I believed it immediately, she exclaimed to Isabel of Castile. Maximilian had his revenge. Henry had gone to France looking for security and had merely swapped one danger for another. For most of the rest of the decade, the threat of Perkin would be hanging over his head, warping his domestic and international policy. And so to the story of Perkin Warbeck. To my shallow mind and personality, the most important thing about Perkin Warbeck has always been that he's called Perkin, which seemed to me to be a silly name when I was a lad. But everyone else remained serious and po-faced when I giggled like an idiot. And anyway, these days, without wanting to be curmudgeonly, you can call anybody anything, as far as I can see. And of course, I have grown up just enough to realise that Perkin is, of course, a diminutive of Peter. It's an affection thing. The use of the suffix kin 
seems to have been mainly male names. So, Watkin, for example, a name that survived to be used by the immortal P.G. Woodhouse with Worcester's nemesis Watkin Bassett. But there were loads of them once upon a time. So in the 16th century, Boykin is a word that could be heard. Bodkin might also. Obviously not as an affectionate term for a sharp-pointed arrowhead designed to cause pain and a lingering death. That would be weird. But for a little body, a small person. Or Thurkin, a small casket. Brought back briefly to the modern consciousness by a chain of pubs when I was still young and beautiful. Or Munchkin, a very small munch. No, I mean a small child. Or at least one of the cute variety. Anyway, largely obsolete as a popular approach to naming by the end of the 15th century, but there are a few survivals. Go out there and find them, pumpkins. The question in my mind is like that of Lambert Simnel. What was he doing? How did he view this extraordinary life he took up? Perkin was to be whisked around Europe in a whirl of partisan finery. In fact, what was happening was that he was being used as a pawn in everyone else's games and he'd have had to have been a complete plank not to have realised that. But I suppose once he stepped onto the carousel that day in Cork, he just couldn't get off. Did he look forward to the coming fight with the King of England? Should he get his army? Or as a merchant's lad, did he thump his pillow with delight when yet another potential sponsor shook their head gravely and refused military aid, but promised to fit him up with the latest fashion in doublets? Henry, of course was apoplectic with rage, and more than that, confused that anyone would support this, quote, feigned lad. He used words such as completely absurd, the height of madness, and I feel some sympathy with his view. But at Mechelen, Perkin and his handsome face and now fine clothes was publicly at least the talk of the town. Lord knows what people said about him behind his back. So Henry turned to his bluff, down-to-earth enforcer, Reginald Bray. And Henry's agents were sent out to make friends, to get close. They placed retainers in the great households. They interviewed confessors and servants. They were sent to sniff out sedition and loose conversations at home. Who might Perkin be working with? Surely no one of importance. But Bray found some alarming evidence. He suspected that travellers, merchants, friars, performers were carrying messages. A plan, if you can call it that, was discovered to paint the handles of Henry's doorways with poison. Flybills appeared and were passed around. Fly postings appeared overnight in London, even on St Paul's. Meanwhile, Perkins' profile grew. Seriously, his head must have been spinning. For example, in 1494... Maximilian's father died and Maximilian finally became the Holy Roman Emperor. There was, of course, an enormous funeral in Vienna. And there was Perkin, paraded for all to see as Richard IV, King of England. And then, to make it worse, he came back to the Low Countries with Archduke Philip of Burgundy, Maximilian's son. A 20-year-old Perkin and 16-year-old Philip went from town to town on a triumphal progress. But every so often, did it pop into Perkins' mind that someone was going to rumble him? Or that at some point, the cheering would stop and he'd have to actually go and try and win his crown in the mud and blood of warfare? Rather him than me, that's all I'm saying. Rather him than me. Meanwhile, 
Henry's agents began to find out stuff, began to find evidence of a thread of conversations. And the thread led back to Henry's very side, to his own household. It led to two of his noble officials with as much access to his person and security as any in the world, and more than anyone could wish for. Lord Fitzwalter, the steward of the royal household, and none other than William Stanley, Lord Chamberlain. The same Stanley that had put the crown on Henry's head, the same Stanley whose brother was his mother's husband. While they watched Fitzwalter and Stanley, Henry's servants and yeomen of bodyguard tightened their grip and security. Officials appeared with lists of all those around the household who had either jobs or maybe grace and favour accommodation, and cheques were made. Henry's intervention in France and his rejection of Maximilian now had other consequences, quite apart from Maximilian's support for Perkin. Now, don't get me wrong, Henry had plenty of reason to turn his back on Maximilian. Henry, Morton, Daubeny, they all knew that Maximilian was deeply unreliable, given to chasing mad schemes and just as suddenly changing his mind. But nonetheless, Habsburg was driven back into the arms of Valois. Because Charles VIII was not like his careful and suspicious father, Louis the Spider. He was a glory man, and he had a plan. The plan was to revive and make real the ancient Angevin claim to the Kingdom of Naples. By 1494, he had bought off both Maximilian and Ferdinand of Aragon with concessions of land. And in September 1494, he launched an enormous army, 25,000 strong, into Italy. An army with the first modern siege train of artillery, with 8,000 Swiss mercenaries rapidly earning a reputation as the finest mercenaries in Europe. France was unstoppable, and all the northern Italian states were brought face to face with the knowledge that for all their magnificence, they were helpless in the face of France's resources. Florence was laid low and subjected, where Savonarola, the fanatical friar, welcomed them as the scourge of God. By February 1495, to the horror of the Pope, Charles was duly in Naples. In his army's march south, by the way, a strange new disease broke out. Sufferers were covered in angry pustules. In later stages, flesh actually fell from their faces, and they were usually dead within a few months. No one knew what this hideous disease was, and so they called it the French disease. Only in the 16th century would it be named syphilis. No one is quite sure where it came from, whether it was in Europe already and just mutated, or if it was brought back from the New World in Columbus's ships. But although the disease would mutate and become to a degree less virulent than its earliest form, it was, of course, here to stay. Back in the Low Countries, the moment had come for Perkin, his most ardent supporter, or at least Henry's most virulent opponent, Margaret of Burgundy, had offered practical help in the form of money to hire men and ships. Perkin was to have the chance to prove himself in war and claim the throne of England in a dead prince's name. Lucky old Perky. Which we will hear more about next time. In the meantime, starting Shedcasts have been an absolute hoot. So thanks especially to those of you who have shown the touching trust in your host to chuck some money at me to boot. Thank you so very much. Oh, the meat and potato pie joke. So, meat and potato pie. Meat and potato pie goes into a pub, goes up to the bar, and she says, uh, Hi there, I'll have a pint of Breakspear's Ordinary, please, barman. The barman looks at the meat and potato pie, 
shakes his head sadly and says, I'm sorry, madam, we don't serve food here. Boom, and if you will, tish. See you next week, or some of you anyway, over at the Anglo-Saxon podcast for more about Alfred the Great and Shedcasters. Fun with Wills is out this week. Good luck, everyone. <laughs>